0: Hello, and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is David Graham. David is an investigative reporter, a writer for The New Yorker, and an author. Probably the best known of his books is Killers of the Flower Moon, which was recently made into a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and it's directed by Martin Scorsese. But today we're going to talk about his latest book, which is The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder which tells the absolutely eye-popping story of Her Majesty's Ship, the Wager, and its part in the war between Britain and Spain some 300 years ago back in the 1740s. Anyway, uh, welcome, David, to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on the program.
0: So I wasn't sure exactly where to start, but I thought we could begin right in the thick of it. So it's 1740. Britain is at war with Spain, and they've sent a squadron of eight ships six warships and two supply vessels and they're on a they're on a secret mission and the plan is to sail around the bottom of south america into the pacific where they can attack uh, the spanish possessions on the coast so i thought we could take the voyage round the horn first and then come back and talk about how the war started and that kind of thing So could you describe for people how the journey around Cape Horn unfolds for the squadron as a whole, but but particularly for the subject of your book, which is the wager commanded by Captain David Cheap?
1: Yeah, so um, as they are coming around Cape Horn, they almost instantly encounter uh, what are some of the worst seas in the world. And that is because... At the tip of South America, where Cape Horn is, the seas there travel around the Earth about 13,000 miles, uh, unimpeded by land, accumulating this enormous force. And then those seas funnel between the very bottom of South America and Antarctica into this narrow passageway where the, um, the, the depth also suddenly shallows dramatically. And so you get the strongest currents on Earth, you get waves that can dwarf a 90-foot mast, and you get winds that can accelerate frequently to hurricane force, and they can even reach 200 miles per hour. And as the squadron, including the wager, is coming around the horn, they encounter uh, just these unbelievably violent tempest what one member of the wager describes as the perfect hurricane herman melville who later rounded the horn uh compared it to a descent into hell in dante's inferno and uh, the the wager is just being bandied about as if it were no more than a pitiful rowboat it was about 123 feet long water is uh you know surging over the decks uh planks are cracking. Uh, One of its masts fell down, its mizzen mass. And at one point, you know, these ships uh, couldn't even fly their sails because they kept blowing out in the, in the wind. And one of the captains of one of the ship does something really quite astonishing. He orders his top men to climb these masts, which can rise, you know, about 100 feet into the air, and to use their bodies as threadbare sails because he didn't have a way to control the ship without any sails. And so these poor men and boys climb these masts, clinging to the shrouds and the rat lines, using their bodies as kind of concave, threadbare sails as a gale blows against them. Uh, amazingly uh, this enables the ship uh, to maneuver some but one of the poor seamen as the mass kind of as they rock about 45 degrees to port and then 45 degrees to starboard one of the poor men is uh, catapulted into the sea and they can see him desperately uh, swimming after the ship but there's no way to rescue them how long are they trying to get round the horn they are there for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. You know they thought, uh, you know, uh, you know, it might be a few weeks, but they they find themselves by the currents and the winds just almost often almost stationary or being blown backwards, and then they often miscalculate where they are on the map, and so they have to turn back. You know, at one point they think they're safely around the horn, and suddenly they realize they're not, and so they have to turn backwards and head smack into the storms once again. And, you know, it's in that moment where they know if if they're going to persevere, they're going to need every member of these crews and officers to operate these very complex vessels, and yet it's in that very moment where many of the semen can no longer rise from their hammocks because they are suffering from a mysterious illness. And their hair begins to fall out, and their teeth begins to fall out, and the cartilage that you know seems to glue together, their bones seems to be coming undone. Uh, and the disease seems to be affecting their senses. Um, one semen said, uh, it got into our brains and we went raving mad. And of course, they were suffering from that great enigma of the age of sail, which was scurvy. And nobody knew what had caused it or that the cure was so simple that all they needed was some more vitamin C in their diet. And so they suffer one of the worst maritime outbreaks of scurvy that has ever been recorded. Hundreds and hundreds of members of the squadron perish. Their bodies tossed overboard, so they are essentially um, in dire straits as they try to get around the horn. I think I read somewhere. I think
0: Roger Crowley he was writing about the Spanish, not the Spanish, the Portuguese going round Africa, and he said that that the symptoms start after about sixty-eight days, and then the death started about eighty-four days. And I can't remember. I think he says after one hundred. Twenty days or something like that. Pretty much, the whole company is dead. I mean, it. it I mean, it is. It is. It's fatal, isn't it? I mean, it, it. It kills.
1: Oh yeah, it is. Oh yeah, it kills. I mean, it's obviously so simple. It's a vitamin deficiency, you see. But um, it's uh, that vitamin affects so much of the way the body holds together. You know, there was one seaman who had been in a battle five decades earlier. And he had fractured a bone, and obviously that bone had had long since healed over time. And suddenly it mysteriously shatters again uh, in the same place. And so, yeah, no, it is dire. And uh, hundreds and hundreds, I mean, you had complements that were just decimated on these ships. You know, usually you would have half of a complement on a ship, obviously, on deck, on watch at a time, which on these ships, you know, was more than a hundred men on some of the larger ships you know it could be 200 300 men and you know at times they are so depleted of men they have only about a dozen do- just a dozen uh, men and boys on deck trying to operate these shale- sails uh, operate these ships and sometimes they have so few men they can they can barely even raise or operate a sail when they're able to fly one
0: And all this in the context of, you know, hurricane force winds, you know, just horrific conditions.
1: Yes, they are in, uh, I forgot the nickname, but uh, there are these, uh, the screaming, now I forget them, but they're each of those latitudes. Yeah, they've got the screaming 50s or something like that. Yes, the screaming 50s, yes, and they are now smack into the screaming 50s um and and there's a seaman who said i think again my you you've read it more recently than i wrote it so but um essentially when you're when you're below uh 50 degrees latitude there is no god and they are essentially uh in that area now what sort of
0: men are on board i mean are they i mean sailing these ships you made the point these are highly complicated vessels you know all the ropes all the sails it all has you know people need to know what they're doing And what kind of men are on board? Are are they generally skilled? What's the crew made up of?
1: Yeah, I mean, they really are. uh, uh, One of the things that really fascinates me about these ships is they are these floating civilizations with a very interesting cast of people. Any of these uh, warships, you know, were expected to have at least a a, a strong portion of skilled seamen. You You could have landlubbers and uh, unskilled people, but there needed to be a core of skilled seamen who knew how to work, for example, the anchors and the sails. And there was always a kind of, uh, you know, a vast diversity. And on on the ships in the squadron, it was no different. Uh, You would have boys who were as young as six who were training uh, to become officers or seamen. On the wager, the cook was in his eighties. Dear God! Then you would have, you know, you would have aristocrats uh, who would be the officers and dandies. You'd have city paupers. You'd have professional craftsmen like the gunners and the carpenters and the barrel makers. Um, you had free black seamen, um, and uh, you know the British Navy had a. a a pretty good reputation of, of kind of forging these fractious individuals into what Horatio Nelson later dubbed the Band of Brothers. But the challenge on this, on this squadron, and especially on the wager, was quite enormous because um, for this expedition, um, the British Navy had been short of men. It had exhausted its supply of volunteers. And there was no conscription then in Great Britain. And so they had unleashed the press gangs to round up seamen. And they would essentially wander into ports, go into towns and cities, board ships coming into port, and eyeball you. And if you had any of the telltale signs of a mariner, a round hat, or a checkered shirt, or they would look at your fingernails. And if you had, if you had some tar on them, which was used on ships to make everything water resistant. They would seize you uh, and kind of drag you unwillingly and in effect kidnap you uh, to go on, on this perilous voyage. And even after the press gangs had done their dirty business, the squadron, which required nearly uh, 2,000 men and the wager had a complement of about 250 uh, men, was still short of, of officer. I oh, was still short of crew. And so they had taken the extreme measure of going to a retirement home and rounding up uh, seamen who were in their 60s and 70s, many of whom were missing an assortment of limbs, some of whom were so sick they had to be hoisted on stretchers onto this voyage. And everybody knew even at the time that they were essentially sailing to their death. So uh, because so much uh, members of the wagers uh, complement was made up of pressed and kind of recalcitrant seamen as well as seamen, the challenge of somehow molding them into a unifies force was enormous.
0: You said the, um, the officers are aristocrats and dandies. But I guess one difference between the Navy at the time and the Army is that you wouldn't have many incompetent officers because you have to, you know, to become a captain, you have to serve your time.
1: Yes. And you have to get your hands dirty. You got to get your hands dirty. You know, you can't really be on a ship in those close quarters and and do some of the labor. So, uh, you know, even the officers, uh, especially in training, will be doing their work. And, you know, it's one of the reasons there were boys on these ships, because boys would start their training, you know, on the wager as a midshipman named John Byron. Whose grandfather he would later go on to become the grandfather of the a famous poet Lord Byron. Um, but you know he is 16 years old when the voyage sets off, and he is training on that path to become an officer. So and he is expected to do all the menial tasks that a regular seaman would do. In training, uh, and that included climbing the mast, that included, um, you know, you name it, uh, you know, uh, working the sails, the ropes, um, uh, cleaning the ship. So all these kind of menial tasks that uh, regular seamen were done, even though he was in training um, to become an officer one day and to walk in the quarter deck, uh, he was learning those tasks. So there was a kind of path to train and to have skilled seamen because it really required it. I mean the, the the consequences of having an incompetent commander on a ship at sea or at war was um you know devastating. And of course if you were an incompetent or or overly tyrannical commander, nobody wanted to go to sea with you. So Captain Cheap
0: Well, he gets them round the horn. Um two of the ships actually don't make it round the horn. They they give up and, and turn back. But Cheap manages to get them round the Horn. Um, but then what happens?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, another challenge they are facing uh, coming around the Horn and, and, and on the expedition in general is that they have to sail partially blind because they can determine their latitude fairly easily by reading the stars, something that seamen have been able to do for a long time. Magellan did it. Columbus did it. But, they have no way of knowing their longitude or at least their precise longitude um because that would require a reliable clock to measure and so they're forced to rely on what was known as dead reckoning and uh, you know to simplify it essentially amounted to some informed guesswork where you're kind of estimating your speed and the currents um and a leap of faith and there was a reason why it was called tet dead reckoning for me. <laughs> <laughs> um and so they um All the ships in the squadron were determined to stay together in the storm because they knew if they separated, there'd be no one there to rescue them or help them if something happened. And so they're firing their cannons to signal their location, at least blanks in their cannon because that's how they communicated. There was no, uh, you know, uh, telecommunication. Uh, Yet eventually, uh, they all scatter. You know, the booming cannons get drowned out by the wind and, and the fog and the storm and the waves. Uh, As you mentioned, two of the ships turn back and the wager separates. Uh, But Captain Cheap is determined to get around the horn and to try to reach a place off the Chilean coastline that the Commodore of the expedition had given them in case they were ever separated to rendezvous. And he does get them around the horn, joining that elite club, but the uh, navigators end up miscalculating their longitude. um, And they Miscalculated by hundreds of miles, and so suddenly they think they are far from the coastline of Chile, and instead, they suddenly find themselves trapped in a bay, a gulf that is now known as the Gulf of Sorrows, or some prefer to call it the Gulf of Pain. And the wager suddenly hits a submerged rock, and the rudder shatters, and there's a two-ton anchor that plunges through the the bottom of the hull leaving a gaping hole. And it's important to understand the terror that the men were going through at that moment. I mean, these ships were their homes. You know, they were these murderous instruments for war, but they were also their floating fortresses and their homes against the elements. And most seamen in those days didn't know how to swim. And so here their ship uh, has hit this rock. Suddenly a wave comes and washes it off the rock. So it's careening through a minefield, but it has no rudder to stare by and it's filling with water uh, pouring inside uh, as it goes until at last it smashes into this cluster of rocks. And at that point, the ship just begins to rip apart. Um, You have planks that are shattering. You have decks that are caving in. The masts are coming down. You have water that is surging up. Where There are a lot of rats on these kind of ships at the time. (laughs) These rats are scurrying upward to safety. Of course, many of the men have been suffering from scurvy on the wager, And those who are too sick to get out of their hammocks, they end up drowning in that moment. But the ship does not yet completely sink. It kind of ends up wedged between these two pillars of rock. So even though it's breaking apart, it does not, at least yet, completely submerge under the water. And the survivors kind of scurry to the remnants of the upper parts of the ship. Um, And that's when they peer out and in the distance through the mist, they can see this desolate
0: island. There was a debate, wasn't there, as to whether Cheap was at fault in allowing this to happen, and and his argument, I guess, was I wasn't there,
1: so why <laughs> so why wasn't he there? Yes, so um, a few things happened. I mean, Captain Cheap was. It's important to understand his character. Kind of, it's important to know something about him, which is he was a he was a Scotsman, kind of a burly Scotsman who. Back on land, you know, he came from the upper crust, but he was always plagued by debts and chased by creditors. Uh, he was kind of embittered on land and he had always found refuge at sea. And on this expedition during the war, when a captain of another ship perishes, dies of disease, Captain Cheap is finally promoted and achieves what he had always dreamed of, what he had always longed for, this kind of corrosive or burning ambition, which was to become captain of his own warship. So he is a newly enthroned captain of the wager. And he's determined to kind of prove his mantle, to kind of live up almost to this secret image he holds of himself as a romantic, heroic captain, fighting uh, and attaining this kind of honor uh, that he so uh, desperately seeks. And he is determined to to meet up at this rendezvous, to not delay as they're kind of coming up the Chilean coast. And some of the seamen, especially a gunner named John Bulkley, is warning him that they really need to turn back out to sea, that they're getting too close to the land. He's insisting that they are far off based on their calculations of longitude, which turn out to be wrong. But there are warning signs that he does not heed as he kind of barrels forward, uh, determined, again, to to get to this rendezvous and meet up with a squadron. And then at one point uh, when the uh, ship is in peril, he goes uh, kind of to the front of the ship to try to uh, fix one of the sails. And he ends up falling through a hatch and he plunges down about uh, six feet or so. And he lands on his shoulder. And so much so that when one of the seamen describes this account being able to see the bones, it was a really uh, pretty brutal fall um, and so he's taken below, is given some um, opium, and is kind of you know floating off into the ether of his dreams as the ship is then hits the submerged rock. So not only was the ship sailing uh, without a rudder uh, in that perilous <laughs> moment, but it was also without a captain.
0: Should we just, before we get to the shore, should we just double back and just say, why, is, why are England and Spain at war? And why has it got the most ridiculous name of any war <laughs> <laughs> in human history?
1: <laughs> yes, it is, it is a ridiculous name. Um, so uh, it, it's known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. And in 1739, um, it, or in the late 1730s, about 1738, 1739, a story circulates about a British merchant captain named Robert Jenkins, whose ship had been boarded in the Caribbean, and uh, it was reported that uh, they had uh, cut off his ear. Uh, And at that time, there was a lot of tension between uh, Great Britain and its rival Spain, because Great Britain was hoping to kind of expand its empire into the domain that Spain had long since controlled, which was much of Latin America, including the Caribbean and Central America and South America. To expand its trade its trading ports its access uh, and monopolies on trade and so this story circulated it was kind of ginned up and got hold of by the press and uh, so uh, eventually uh, in 1739 Great Britain uh, declares war against Spain and The incident with Robert Jenkins, as I described later in the book, had really been kind of ginned up. It it does appear to have happened, but it happened many years earlier and had long since been forgotten. But imperialists who were seeking a pretext for war had kind of seized on this incident and used it as propaganda for a pretext for war. So uh, the expedition, so as war begins, uh, the wager. And the other ships in this squadron are given orders on a secret mission, which is to not only sail around Cape Horn and then to go up the coasts of uh, Latin America kind of attacking Spanish ships, but to eventually, as you described at the very beginning, to try to intercept the Spanish galleon filled with treasure that would go back and forth for plunder uh, from Mexico to the Philippines in order to buy um, asian commodities and this ship was just filled with so much plunder with you know virgin silver worth about today more than 80 million dollars and this ship was known as the prize of all the ocean so believe it or not that was you know part of the mission uh, that the wager and its fellow ships were on it had a real whiff of piracy about it yeah the english i
0: guess for a very long time, there was a highly piratical streak in the English Navy, going all the way from before Drake's time, I guess. But even up into the Napoleonic Wars, you have this idea of prize money, where you get to share in whatever's whatever's taken. Uh, so it is a it is a sort of form of licensed piracy in, in a in a sense, I guess.
1: And this and in, interestingly enough, this expedition in many ways marked the the kind of the last vestige of that era of kind of piratical missions like this. And yes, the seamen and the officers were each, you know, offered a tantalizing prospect, which was a share in any of the prize money seized. And that had at least lured some of them on the expedition. And even those who had gone unwillingly, it, you know, it was something that they at least held out hopes for. Uh, before so many of them perished, and of course before the ship uh, ended up wrecked, the wager wrecked on this desolate island.
0: One of the things I hadn't really appreciated properly before I started looking into this is that these these big warships they carry, sm- you know, quite large, but 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 smaller boats. Uh, you know, you've got the long boat, you've got a barge, you you've got all these kind of things. So, so as I understand it, they are able. They are able to use one or more of these boats to get ashore. And yet, also what was very interesting to me reading your book is that some of the sailors don't want to
1: leave the ship. They, they'd almost rather be there in the ruin. It's yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, there is kind of a moment. So there are about 146 survivors, including captain sheep, including John Bulkley, who I described, this gunner, including this midshipman, John Byron, the future grandfather of Lord Byron. And many of them, you know, they begin to be ferried ashore in these small transport boats that can be rowed. And they also, you can fly a sail on them as well. Um, They're kind of meant to be both rowed and sailed uh, either way. And they were used by ships to, you know, if you had to go back and forth between a ship at sea or if you were, you know, anchored in a port and you had to bring men ashore, they were. These are the way it was done. They weren't lifeboats, but they had each one of these ships would usually have, you know, four or five of these um, different sized, uh, relatively small transport boats. And so some of them are ferried ashore, but there is a group that you know, almost just descends into an orgy of revelry at that moment of of desperation and madness when the ship wrecks. I, You know, you have to recall they have been through so much. They have suffered scurvy and typhoons. They'd earlier suffered a typhus outbreak. Um, I think many of them are at their wits' ends, and I think many of them assume they are going to perish. And so some of them, you know, just stay on the ship, there is a group, a kind of, uh, you know, a mad faction who kind of break into the into the storeroom and get out the brandy and the wine and the officers clothing and dress themselves in them until eventually they when the ship is just cracking up so much, uh, they eventually leave as well. And so there's about 146 of them who eventually get to this island. Initially, they hope you know, perhaps this will be their salvation on this island. Of course, it doesn't quite turn out that way. So what kind of place is it? Is it, is it a
0: nice, welcoming <laughs> place with plenty of natural resources or, or not so
1: much? It, it, it's a place of wild uh, desolation. It's about five miles long in kind of the longest direction, a couple of miles, uh, you know, in the other direction. Um, so it's a relatively small island. It is mountainous. It is covered with kind of a dense foliage that makes it very hard to walk on. It is windswept. The trees are bent about 45 degrees angles all the time because of the winds. The temperature when they arrived was hovering around freezing. It was constantly raining or sleeting. And worst of all, they could find virtually no food on the island. Um, There are a few birds that kind of fly tantalizingly off the coastline along the little you know, there's a little beachhead near where they are wrecked and they start to try to set up a settlement. Um, you know, there are some mussels that they gradually exhaust. Uh, there's some bits and sprouts of celery, which to them kind of rather mysteriously and miraculously cures their scurvy because it had some vitamin C in it. Um, But that's really about it. And uh, one one British officer later described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him.
0: And... They have some more bad luck, don't they? In that they they manage to salvage stuff off the ship, but one of their big problems is that one of the things that they salvage in fairly large quantities is what you described—the brandy and the wine. So they've got they've got more alcohol than they have food by some considerable measure, which makes yes. them pretty hard to control.
1: They would bring, you know, beer and brandy. That was kind of what the the. the The men consumed, and so yes, they were able to salvage, uh, you know, you know, barrels of this um, in a kind of very dangerous, somewhat ingenious salvage rescue operation. Where they, because again, many of them don't swim, and they have to kind of crawl upon this submerged wreck in the waves uh, that is sinking and breaking apart, even as they're climbing on it fishing below, trying to get into any kind of uh, – get into the hold or cabins. And so they're able to fish out some of this, but very little food. They get uh, some bits of meat. They get some uh, flour, um, but more liquor. Um, Captain Cheat really wants to govern on the island. He wants to build an imperial outpost. <laughs> he wants to govern by the same rules that he had governed on the ship. He believes he should still be their commander – because he had been their commander on the ship. And, you know, he starts to build a a supply tent to kind of store the rations, to ration them out. And yet, in that state of nature, as they begin to starve, order really does begin to gradually break down into kind of a real-life Lord of the Flies. And there is one group that had been – some of those men were the same uh, members of the ship who had originally refused to leave, kind of descended into this orgy of revelry um, they uh, break off they're the first faction to kind of break off and they become, they were known as the seceders among the other uh, seamen in the encampment and they're kind of like these marauders who kind of rove the island, pillaging and and, and uh, one of them is believed to eventually kill at least two seamen to steal their rations uh, so they kind of you know, evoke a certain degree of terror uh, in the others as they r- at bandy about, and then there is Captain Cheaps group in the in the in the main settlement. There are two main groups. One is Captain Cheaps group and the seamen who remain loyal to him, which is a dwindling number. And then there is a group that is increasingly um, uh, being galvanized uh, by the. Gunner John Bulkeley and John Bulkeley is a really interesting figure because you know he came from the, we don't know exactly what class he came from but probably the lower to middle class he was very, maybe middle class he was very literate um, he was a compulsive diarist and uh, yet he knew that on a warship in that in those days of a pretty rigid class structure that it was really unlikely that he was ever going to become a, a commander of a warship and yet suddenly on that island. Uh, In that democracy of suffering, and with him, you know, kind of stirring the men with calls, he uses the phrase "life and liberty." Um, (laughs) Many of the men begin to gravitate uh, toward him. So you gradually have these kind of two main factions in the campment, and then this third faction that's kind of roaming about them, uh, kind of wildly.
0: Um And. Captain Cheap I, I mean I think I think his weakness sort of finds him on the island because he isn't able to command respect and people have this idea that once the ship is gone you know it's unclear whether or not the captain has has the legal right to command them I think he does but the sailors don't necessarily believe that and and in any case they kind of have lost trust in him and then they have this this creature called Cousins one of the midshipmen who Who, when he's got drink, which he has all the time, he becomes incredibly unruly, and Cheap just loses his head, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, fate could be very cruel. Captain Cheap, in other circumstances, might have had some of the abilities. He was very brave um, and fearless, and he was a skilled seaman on a ship. He was skilled. You know, he might have succeeded, but on the island. The challenges are enormous, and he is missing that kind of mysterious ingredient of leadership that somebody, let's say, like Shackleton, who our listeners (laughs) might know, Um, or that the commodore of this expedition, a man we haven't discussed named George Anson, who was on the flagship, uh, possess, And that is an ability to lead not through the lash, but through inspiring and conjoling and sympathizing and leading by example, these kind of these, you know, what gets men to do things in very unpleasant circumstances to sacrifice some of their self-interest for the interests of the whole. And he is missing that and he is insecure and he's desperate to hold on to his command. And he is, you know, put in almost impossible circumstances. Uh, but his weaknesses indeed do begin to show. And at one point, you know, he's, co- he now suspects kind of, he's terrified of mutiny. He's kind of starting to suspect it in the shadows and the, you know, in the air. He doesn't know murmurings in different, in different, uh, little huts that have been built. You know, who's going to turn against him? And Cousins has been disobedient. And at one moment, he suspects he is committing mutiny. Uh, without real grounds and without questioning him, he bursts out of his own little shack that he's been living in. Cheap does. Um, and he takes his pistol and he walks right up to, well, first he screams, where is that villain? And then he goes right up to, uh, Cousins, uh, who is drunk and he takes, Cheap takes his pistol and without asking questions or investigating him, you know, for the specific charges, shoots them right in the head. And rather than this kind of calming matters, it does briefly calm matters in the sense that the seamen who are on the verge of mutiny at that point do eventually retreat. But in the long run, rather than calming matters, it only turns the men more against the
0: captain. And so they end up with two plans, don't they, to, to get off the island? One is Bulkley's plan. And the other is the captain's plan. And they also do this incredible thing, which I still can't really understand or believe, which is that the longboat, which they've managed to retrieve, it's not big enough for them all. So they saw it in half. <laughs> and, they, and they lengthen it. And I just have no idea how that is physically possible.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it really, you know, again, it, this is a book of um, many horrors. <laughs> um yeah, of kind of a you know, uh, you know, both before the shipwreck and then this Lord of the Flies environment, but it's also you know reveals often the good and ingenuity and remarkable resilience of people. I mean, you know, this plan that for a moment they 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 come up with a a plan initially or a a, a scheme to get off the island that briefly unites at least the two main factions in the settlement, which is. As you say, they're going to take this longbow. They have this really talented carpenter uh, among them who is uh, John Boakley's best friend. And, you know, the plan is to first, they have to excavate it, for lack of a word, salvage it uh, from the wreckage. And so they manage to get it out of the ship. It's kind of already kind of battered and and, and partially crushed. And then they need to expand it. Um, You know, their numbers at that point. Initially, the ship had about 250 men. Uh, By this point, you know, they're down to probably under 100 men uh, on the island. But if they're going to get them off, they're going to need to expand this boat. And so, yes, they saw it in half. They find various special planks and trees that they cut. They make bolts out of wood. And they work on this plan for many, many weeks while they're starving, uh, no less. I mean, some of the men are collapsing, you know, from hunger um and they begin to uh, to to lengthen and to remake it and yet um gradually they fracture again over what to do with this ship so they agree yes this is our best way that we will ever get off the island if we build this uh and expand this vessel and create this kind of castaway boat but the problem is um captain cheap has a plan which is to go north he wants to take this vessel when it's completed and sail north Up the coastline of Chile, still hoping to rendezvous with Commodore Anson and the squadron. He thinks they could probably capture, he thinks they can capture, despite their kind of perilous, starving uh, circumstances, capture at least a trade ship uh, off one of the islands. And then once they capture that trade ship, sail and rendezvous with the Commodore and continue on with the expedition. And so, you know, he is invoking notions of patriotism, duty, loyalty. John Boakley, looking at this plan, says he thinks this is completely nuts, that, you know, if we sail north, we're going to be sailing into the jaws of a Spanish armada, because that's where the Spanish would be, you know, located further up the coastline. And so he comes up with a, an alternative plan that is also really perilous, But it is to sail away from the Spanish because, again, they're at war with Spain um, and to go southward. And his plan is to take the castaway boat, sail south, then cross through the Strait of Magellan. Not go around the Horn, but go through the Strait of Magellan, but which is also, uh, you know, it's an alternative passage, a way to get around South America. But it's, it's also notorious for its squalls. So he plans to sail through there and then sail north. Past Argentina what what today is Argentina, because again that's Spanish occupied territory, and he's afraid they'll be captured and imprisoned or sunk in a battle and get all the way up to Brazil It's about a th- so his plan is to go about three thousand miles, so the distance is insane, um, but it would elude the spanish and Cheap's plan is to sail a much shorter distance, you know maybe about three hundred fifty miles north. Yet into uh, toward the Spanish and to actually try to combat the Spanish, Uh, and this fractures them only further to the point that they're in such warring camps that they're located only you know you know about fifteen yards from each other. But at a certain point, they won't even speak to each other, and so they send emissaries back and forth. There's like (laughs) these diplomats who have to go and carry messages from Bulkley's led faction to Cheap and back and forth, and they've also you know they've been uh, squirreling away arms that they've been able to salvage from the ship. So, you know, they have muskets or, or whatnot. And so, uh, you know, they're also storing weaponry and gunpowder, preparing, you know, as they're getting there, you know, they're basically two entrenched warring camps at a certain point. But I'm guessing that uh, that it's going to be Bulkley that gets his way because he presumably is the man that can command can command the men. Yes, he is the an instinctive leader. He is cunning he could be even a little ruthless at times uh but he was also very skilled and the men looking upon him believed he was our best chance to survive he was also a really brilliant navigator and so yes the the men end up galvanizing uh by you know galvanized by him and uh, and his stirring you know stirring words of life and liberty and to basically get home, they are done. You know, most of the men at this point are are done with this imperial folly. Cheap uh, still wants to, um, you know, adhere to his orders and resume them. So cheap gets left behind. I think with just
0: a few men. I think there's only two or three men stay with him. Well, you have still got a few seceders wandering around aimlessly, but but basically everybody sails off and they leave him. Um, I think they leave him some useless boat that's somewhat crushed
1: the yawl or something like that. Yeah, they leave him one of the crushed transport boats and and uh yes, he is you know, one night, you know, these ghostly mutineers, as he would call them, he called them my mutineers, would those my mutineers, Well, he is sleeping in his in, in the hut where he is staying, these kind of ghostly matted, you know, figures with Tangled beards and, you know, their bodies are almost just, you know, they're bone thin, burst into, um, where he's staying at night and they tie him up and eventually they do indeed abandon him on the island. And of course, they're very conscious while all this is going on, even though they are thousands of miles away from England, you know, throughout this period and after, the men are always conscious. It's almost like the eye of the tea is peering down upon them, God, <laughs> and they live with the fear that if they do ever get back to England, that they will have to justify their actions, and that if they are unable to, they maybe get they will be hanged uh, for their alleged crimes and sins. And so, you know, one of the reasons, although it's not written down but is kind of clear and cheaply certainly believes it is if cheap is left behind there will be only one version of the story <laughs> to prevail <laughs> one of the mo- i mean there's so many surprises
0: in the story but as they head off and they've got the they've got the long boat and i think they have a couple of tiny boats or two smaller boats one of which is the barge and a sail flies off, and and so they send Byron back with the barge to get a new sail with uh, seven or eight men, I think. And he then promptly deserts the deserters and and, and rejoins with Cheap. So now you've got two decent sized groups. I mean, Cheap's is much smaller, and and Buckley carries on up, and and Cheap now, you know, he's ready to make he's ready to make his dash north. Yes. Uh, so. Byron is back with with cheap. Bulkley's on his way north. So who should we follow first? Should we follow Bulkley, uh, trying I, to find the Straits of Magellan? And that's not easy, is it? Because it's a complete mess. The coastline of uh, South America there. Even finding the Straits of Magellan is is an incredible feat.
1: Yes, I mean you know, and again they don't have any kind of you know systematic charts of this area. It was an area that was largely unknown to the British. There had been a uh, a, a seaman named Narborough, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who had gone through the Strait of Magellan uh, earlier in the century. And so Bulkeley actually had his chronicle. You know, on these ships, they would often bring chronicles of other seamen and they would use them as kind of navigation tools, their descriptions. But that's really all he has is this account um, and a kind of a sketch of the area. And so Bulkley as they're trying to kind of navigate South and through the Strait of Magellan, which has all these kind of narrow winding passageways, it's almost like a maze too. You know, you take a wrong turn, you end up in a dead end and then you got to turn back. It's trying to navigate and you know, just to kind of, so the listeners have have a, a better image of what this was like, you know, there's about 80 of them. Well, there's about 69 or so packed into the, the larger, the large kind of castaway boat that they have remade. And they are packed so tightly that they can barely stand. They have virtually no provisions. Um, and then they have at least one other uh, little transport boat uh, that is accompanying them, at least for a period, uh, that is packed with men. And uh, Or there's two of them, actually. But then, as you mentioned, uh, Byron had gone back. And so, you know, they are trying to navigate through these seas, packed so tightly, starving, and with very little means to navigate by. And Bulkley is basically reading the account by Narborough, eyeballing the coastline, and then looking at the text to see if he can match them. <laughs> um, and so you could just imagine the challenges uh, they had. Uh, and again, the plan is to sail some 3,000 miles in this condition and under these circumstances. I really don't know whose plan I would prefer.
0: <laughs> you know, I don't want to fight anymore. I go with Bulkley, but but three thousand miles on an open boat with with, with no food, and latterly because the barge is sort of suited for going inland to maybe try and grab some some limpets or whatever yes. you know whatever you can grab. But but once that's gone, trying to get in to get any kind of food or or water, you know, they they pretty much have to swim ashore. I think.
1: They have to swim ashore, and they, you know because they can't. You know if they get the boat too close to the rocky shore, and it gets, you know, it could get wrecked. And it gets wrecked on the rocks. They lose their their only means of escape. And again, many of the seamen didn't swim, but occasionally, you know, they're so starved they would try to get close to the shoreline and send a few seamen, you know, as close as they can to try to swim the shore to see if they can find any provisions. Of course, in one of these encounters. Um, there's a storm and at least Buckley and his officers say, you know, there's no way to get close enough to the shore. And so there are these periodic abandonments of various seamen along the shore, which is quite horrifying and, and, and tragic.
0: And uh, one of these abandonments, I read the account of it because it, it's quite short. It's only 20 or 30 pages long. And I read the account of it as they're, they're picked up by some indigenous people who are, who are on horseback. And then they're sort of dragged around South America for hundreds and hundreds of miles, traded as slaves from one, one group to another, and then eventually purchased by some English consul or something of that sort uh, in from, from Rio de Janeiro, or I, I can't remember, or Buenos Aires, I can't actually remember now. And they make their way back like that, except one of them, who is John Duck, who is a mulatto, is that the right expression?
1: Yeah, he he was a free black seaman. Uh, he, was bo- he was from London. We don't know much about him because written records don't exist. Um, but, you know, he is somebody who had survived, I mean, just one, you know, unbelievable challenge after another. Survives all this in the castaway voyage and yet then is abandoned with his other men. And then, unlike the others who are white, he is kidnapped and and eventually sold into slavery, and we don't yet know, you know, precisely where or to whom or what his fate is, um, which is, you know, really horrifying and bespeaks to that time. And it was a fear that free black seamen had at that time. You know, in some in some ways they might find more freedom on a ship than they might at land, or at least less discrimination sometimes on a ship, um, because the men had to work so closely together. But they live with that prospect that you know, they could be, you know, if they were in battle or fighting an enemy, they might be caught and, and, and held in slavery. And that's what happened to John Duck. But Bulkley, he he makes it, doesn't he? He does make it. There are about 30 of them that you know, one day washed wash ashore just you know, by the Rio Grande at the border of Brazil. And, uh, you know, they are they are wasted to the bone at that point, or almost wasted to the bone. You know, one of them, you know, soon gives out his last breath and dies. So there are 29 of them who survive. And they announce that they are the survivors of his majesty's ship, the Wager. And then after being shipwrecked on this desolate island, they built this flimsy craft and traversed this whole way. And, of course, they're hailed for their ingenuity and bravery. Um, but then several months later, um, you know, another little boat washed ashore, and this is the one that has Captain Cheap, uh, and uh John Byron and and one other. There's only 3 of them in this kind of dugout. It's a wooden dugout. It was actually an indigenous dugout. They have a sail that is little more than stitched together blankets, and they get the Chiloé Island and, uh, and and then so they they've
0: do- so so just to be clear they they've not gone up to Rio Grande they've they've gone up the west coast to on the Spanish side
1: yes yeah, so they've gone north they have gone north they've remained on the Chilean coastline and they get to an island that is called Chiloé Island which is about three hundred fifty miles north of what is now known as wager Island so they are basically northward along the Chilean coastline that they make it and they are then actually seized they are caught as was feared by Bulkley would happen uh, would happen to them if they got north they are actually seized and they are imprisoned so after everything Cheap and Byron have been through uh, they are actually held in prison uh, unable to communicate with England but eventually <laughs> and there's a kind of a lot of uh, yeah. you know ins and outs of the <laughs> yeah, stories we're, that we're, we, we're missing we're missing a yeah, chunk we, here we're going to have to skip over but you can read the book please <laughs> yeah. uh, but um you know, eventually after they recover, you know, when they first wash up, I mean, Captain Cheap is, is, is so delirious, he can't even recollect his own name. But eventually after being imprisoned and after they recover um, and after there is a kind of truce between Spain and Britain, they are released and they tell a very different story than Boakley and the others who have gone to Brazil and they, especially Cheap you know, says that they were not heroes, those who had gone to Brazil and Buckley's group, who are now back in England. They were, in fact, mutineers. And so that sets off this war of charges and countercharges between the two factions. And after the principal figures and their allies get back to England for some like Captain Cheap and Byron, it had been six years since they left England uh, before they return again. Byron had left at 16, he's now 22, and his family can't even recognize him. Um, They are summoned to face a court-martial for their alleged crimes on the island. And after waging this furious war against the elements, they now begin to wage this furious war over the truth, because um, if they don't tell a convincing tale, they could be hanged after everything they had been through. But there's another set of key
0: characters in this story which is Anson and his men because he does make it through. His ships sort of are in a terrible state and, and they suffer, I think, even worse from scurvy because they have to get across the Pacific Ocean.
1: Yeah, they have a second, they have another, they, bat, they battle a second outbreak of scurvy, yes. Which which
0: weakened even further, so presumably it's even more horrific. So he, I think he, I think one of the ships they have to break up, another they have to abandon because they don't have the men for it, so they burn it. So he's, let, he's down to one ship, which he sort of limps into China to sort of refit and try and recover a bit. And then he sails off home, or at least that's what he tells everybody.
1: He tells everyone. And then uh, after they're off the coastline, he announces that that was a ruse and that his real plan now is to sail toward the Philippines. He had gotten intelligence that the legendary uh, Spanish galleon would be off that coastline around that time period, and that they would go and try uh, to intercept it. Quite remarkably, they track down the Spanish galleon after everything they've been through. you know the squadron of many ships is down to one ship and just a couple hundred men weaken. They intercept the galleon, they square off in battle and they are able to capture the galleon and all its wealth um, and eventually bring it back to England where they are feted and celebrated and the wealth of all the, you know this plunder is paraded through the streets of England. As, as, uh, and there are ballads and poems and uh, sea tales told about Anson after this. So he is greatly celebrated uh, for this uh, seizing of the galleon, especially because the war had been so disastrous up until that point. There really had been very little sense of victory. The war had been stalemated. Thousands died. And the wager affair was a scandal. Um, and so here was at least news. It wasn't going to change the outcome of the war, lost far more treasure than it ever, uh, during the war, than it ever received from capturing the galleon. But here was news of a victory. Um, and so it would become burnished in myth. So
0: once Anson gets back, that's when the court martial takes place. And I think that possibly explains why the court martial turns out sort of rather
1: differently to what you would expect. Definitely. So this story in the book, it's, 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 it's a story about how we tell stories. And there are kind of warring perspectives on members of the ship on the wager as each of them try to shape their own stories to mm. emerge as the hero of them, to live with the things they have done or haven't done. And of course, also to save their own lives at a court martial. So they are all shaping their stories to serve their own self-interest. They generally don't outright lie. But they tell stories the way many of us do, which is, you know, they, they kind of – they leave certain things out. They burnish certain facts. You know, when when Cheap shoots someone on the island, he writes in his account, I was forced to proceed to extremities. He doesn't actually mention <laughs> that he took his gun and put it up to somebody's head. And then, of course, John Byron in his account will say, oh, yeah, no, Captain Cheap shot the guy right in the head and he bled out. And so you, you get to see how each of them are kind of shaping their story. Um And then in the end, as they're at this court martial and there are these warring stories going on, um, you know, I think it's safe uh, to assume, you know, based on the denouement that, you know, the British Empire is listening to these stories and really doesn't like any of them um, because they make, uh, you know, their officers seem more like brutes than like gentlemen. Um, and it's undercutting the myth and legend of, of – of that, was, that was swirling over Anson's capturing of the galleon. And so just as – so eventually they do this incredible thing, which is, you know, you know Bulkley is praying before the court-martial. He, he has been told and assured he and his followers are going to be hanged. Um, Cheap had good reason to fear he was going to be hanged because he faced the most serious charge of all, which was outright homicide. Uh, and yet the court-martial eventually, you know, they don't ask him any questions about any of this. They just ask him about, you know, why did the ship wreck? Uh, you know, what caused the ship to wreck? And, um, it, you know, I, I compare it a little bit to like stopping an officer, stopping a car with a busted teal light and asking about the teal light when there's a dead body in the trunk and not only asking about, you know, not asking about that. And, and, and so they're, they're all let go. And they're all let go. And 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 so just as uh, people tell stories to serve their self-interest, of course, so nations and empires. And in this case, um, the story that the authorities really want to tell and the story that would become burgeoned and, and burnished a myth would be the story of Anson. They had found at last their mythic tale of the sea.
0: <laughs> and there is just a nice little coda to it all, which is that cheap... He is given another job, he is given another command, even after all this. And and it turns out okay, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. As I say, you know, circumstance fake can be cruel and under these circumstances he does capture a Spanish ship. It has some treasure on it. His constitution was greatly weakened from everything and he promptly retires, but he has some wealth and he gets married, uh, although his reputation would always be stained by yeah. by what had happened on the wager. And
0: I felt it was very interesting. There was that poem that appeared in a London newspaper because you would think everybody would be full of praise for, for how it had all turned out with Anson and, and the expedition. Somebody wrote a poem in one of the one of the papers saying that it was amazing how much money they'd spent to get the treasure, and then half of it had disappeared into uh, into private
1: hands. Yes, <laughs> yes. The answer became one of the wealthiest people. Uh,
0: yeah, but maybe they got a good deal because he was also he also rose up the navy, and he was uh, he was a great organizer, I think, of of, of the navy from from there on in.
1: He was, and you know he took a lot of the lessons from the expedition from the mishaps and the bungling that the Admiralty was really responsible for. He was not responsible. For I mean this expedition was kind of doomed from the outset based on poor planning, funding, lack of professional seamen. Um, and so he addresses many of those failings in the Navy um, and could sometimes be referred to as the father of the British Navy.
0: I do think that 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 stories of ships and shipwreck, you know, this sort of story, I think it makes a fantastic book. There was another one I did uh, about The Wreck of the Batavia.
1: Oh, yeah, The Wreck of the Batavia, yes.
0: Which is which is a fantastic story. But again, everything is sort of confined, you know, on an island or on a ship. And that that makes, you know, it's, it sort of intensifies the story and it keeps all the loose ends sort of together. Yes. But But what I wanted to ask you is, do you think it's going to make a successful film? Because I think... For a film, it's so much harder to film on board a boat than it is to film, you know, on dry land where you've got all the perspectives. But on a boat, you're
1: you're always in close-up bobbing around. Yeah, you know, I, it, it, to be honest, I don't know the answer to that question because you know I've I've been fortunate enough that a lot of my books have been turned into stories that have been turned into film and and this one um, you know is being adapted by the same people the did Killers of the Flower Moon Scorsese and DiCaprio um, you know at least their production companies uh, option the material and uh, will hopefully develop it so. You know, I will say this, it couldn't be in better hands. So if anybody can do it, it's them. True. But how how any of that works, you know, I'm just a, basically an archive rat. So I never know any of that <laughs> kind of stuff. <laughs> how to shoot at sea, no idea. But I wouldn't know how to shoot on land either.
0: <laughs> and what are you working on now? you got something?
1: I'm looking for my next uh, book idea and struggling at that. So if anybody has a good idea, reach out to me. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay, David. So thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, then I have a big favor to ask. I don't look to make any money from the podcast. There's no advertising or anything like that. I just do this because I enjoy speaking to the guests and... You know, I'm keen for them to get as big an audience as possible because I think, you know, they are really, really good people. So if you could share it on whatever social media channel you use, tweet it out, whatever it is. And even better, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, goodbye for now.